Are you optimistic Which, about the fourth Kelvin timeline movie? I don't think it's happening, but I've got so much Trek now that's done so much better that I'm like, I don't even care what happens to the movies right now. <laughs> Greetings, runaway Vulcans, mycelial blobs, and sickly Kelpians. You're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wall, and today my guest is Josh Zeller, a playwright, actor, and director whom I know of through the Caltech theater community. We've orbited in the same crowd, but never actually did a show together at Caltech, Nonetheless, through the magic of Twitter, we discovered that we both share a love for Star Trek. And during my recent visit to Caltech, I was able to sit down with Josh at one of my favorite coffee shops in Pasadena, Copa Vida, and chat with him about the process through which science and fiction are infused in one another to make science fiction. Josh's passion is writing science-driven plays. And as he'll soon describe for you, he recently authored a play called The God Particle Complex, which is about the search for the Higgs boson. His being a theater writer gives him a unique vantage on other works of science fiction, like Star Trek. And so I'll ask Josh to help me discuss the recent developments in Star Trek Discovery, including the latest episode, and Obel for Sharon. Let's jump into the conversation. So I think this is like the first time we've actually met in person, right? Because like yeah. you've seen me act on stage and I've seen you act on stage, but we haven't, and we've tweeted at each other. We've like, missed each other. It's been a lot of ships in the night, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's great to finally sit down and talk Trek with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I always think a Star Trek pal is a pal for life, you know, whether you meet in person or not, you know, yeah. To, uh, to be able to, the, the Star Trek connection is always something that, that is a common bond. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm here with Josh Zeller, who is a playwright, actor, and director, and also part of the Madcaps of Science. So, Josh, what is the Madcaps of Science? Well, the Madcaps of Science is me and my uh, writing partner, uh, Chris Bell, and we uh, write plays that are about high science ideas using sort of low-tech theater techniques. Low-tech so, theater techniques to so, explain high-tech yeah, science using, ideas. Yeah, yeah, using bubble machines and fog and actors and explaining high uh, flutin ideas like, you know, the search for the Higgs boson and what's going on at CERN and things like that in a fun, in a fun way. You told me that you just wrote a play called <laughs> The God Particle Complex. Can you yeah. <laughs> explain more about what that is? Yeah, that was a uh, one-act play that I uh, wrote and initially uh, performed a couple of years ago, right around the time of the actual discovery of the Higgs boson. I've always been fascinated with the, um, the Higgs and the, the search for it and collecting articles you know, since 2008 uh, about all the various developments of it. So we developed a play that somehow... Uh, 
expressed all the uh, you know hopes and dreams in a fun and also connected it into uh, time travel and uh, other uh, ideas in science and dark matter and other dimensions. And <laughs> within 45 minutes, the uh, the audience learns everything they need to know about the real search and had a whole uh, ride along the way. And the universe may have been destroyed at the end of the play. It sounds like um, <laughs> everything was in it. You have the yeah. Higgs boson, dark matter, time travel. So just in case listeners don't know what the Higgs boson is. It is a uh, particle that, is, that makes matter matter. That, that gives <laughs> makes it mass. matter matter. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better phrase. Do you the, matter? <laughs> what really matters in yeah. mind? <laughs> All just particles floating in space. Excellent. But, but yeah, so in, 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 in Geneva, they are uh, making particle uh, collisions deep in the earth, uh, miles underground, and a huge... The world's largest and most expensive, I believe, scientific experiment currently running. So, Josh, when you were deciding to write about the Higgs boson, how much research did you have to do? It actually took a year worth of research, collecting articles, watching a lot of documentaries, uh, internet, and just reading to to really... because at first, yeah, I was interested in the idea of it, but how do you take all this, this current events idea and put it into a fictional, fun play? So I started to sort of generate like a to brainstorm and come up with lists of ideas and concepts and things that I thought should appear in the play and uh, sort of reverse engineered that into a piece, things that I like to see and, and whatnot. The first... Uh, image that we had was seeing actors be a particle collision. So the play starts and there's a monologue given by a narrator character, Sven, the maintenance man, as the two main scientists come out and demonstrate what he's talking about. So as he describes the particles going in opposite directions in the tubes and making collisions, you see these actors in a sort of fun, little bit goofy way do do the motions and collide into each other and spin off and that kind of thing. So... So to demonstrate that to an to the audience, and I think um, there was a lot of takeaway from it too. And, and, and I, I did get responses on like Facebook for weeks after after you know the show, like when different things would happen with the the Higgs and CERN, people would send me articles and stuff. So I think people learned a lot and uh, had a fun time in this kind of one act late night play, late night show environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds really awesome, and I really appreciate the fact that you're trying to take science and show it to a general audience using such a physical mechanism. Yeah. We have actors pretending to be these fundamental particles and they bump into each other and that represents particles colliding. Yeah. 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 I think theater more than movies even can really demonstrate science, a sort of hard science because you fill in the gaps with your imagination more than a movie. There's no CGI or any of that thing, that stuff. So when you see people and you're spoken to or, or you're in the room when these amazing things are happening, you can take away the core concepts in, in a way that you can't necessarily from watching Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Which we will talk about in just a second. Yeah. Um, so when you're writing a play, mm-hmm. a play has to have a story, yeah. right? So how do you decide on the story when you have a scientific concept? How do you build a narrative around this yeah abstract concept that's a good question um because yeah that that at first was a big struggle and it it did take about a year of research and also coming up with yeah once you start brainstorming and then then you start it starts to emerge you realize that you might need certain elements to tell the story i like plays that have a character that talks to the audience 
So it felt like there needed to be a narrator. And, and in order to sort of make it more relatable to the layman, you got to have the guy be more of a low-level person than one of the scientists. And, you know, thinking about it as a comedy, you need to have a foil. And so we started to develop these two scientist characters. One was named Dr. Feldman, and the other one was named Dr. Flurman. So Feldman was very optimistic, where Flurman was very pessimistic. So basically the plot of the play, after the opening scene where you see this dance of the particle collision, then we're taken to a day at CERN after they come back from some sort of hiatus where there's been a lot of work on the collider. And the president of CERN gathers everybody and over the microphone tells the scientists, and in a sort of press conference scenario, there is no Higgs boson. We don't know what is real. We have to start at square one. Thanks and good luck. Mm. So Dr. Flurman has a nervous breakdown, and Dr. Feldman is very optimistic and is like, "No, that is what we—that's what we do. This is unknown, and, and that search for for scientific truth. We're, we're we're right here." Where Flurman is having a breakdown and is questioning all of his life's choices and <laughs> and and being away from his family and whatnot. You start to get into like his you know personal glimpses of his personal life as he skypes with his cat. This kind of sad existence for months on end. And as they're arguing uh, amongst each other, they, they go down to into the tunnel. And as they're walking down the tunnel, a time vortex opens up and a, and a time traveler who's in a, a full body lycra suit and goggles comes out and drugs the scientists, tells them that he's from the future and that Dr. Flurman, who has had a breakdown is actually the new Einstein where Dr. Feldman, he doesn't even know who it is, but earlier in the play we've been talking about their different theories of, of what the Higgs is. It's really Dr. Feldman's theories that the time traveler is attributing to Dr. Flurman. So that leads to complications. Uh, and as they're frozen, they listen to this powdered speech from the time traveler who tells them, it's like, you will be Einstein, but I'm going to tell you how to not create a black hole in the process. I'm from a doomed future. So in trying to fix it, he, he gives Dr. Flurman the, uh, the formulas lead it, and then leaves. The scientists suddenly can speak in other languages, and uh, and then they uh, and then they start to argue amongst each other. How can you be the, the next Einstein? I'm the real scientist here. I, it was my theories and this and that. And then the time traveler reappears, giving them the same speech but only shorter. This happens again and again, and the scientists are able to do the math, and they realize that it's the time traveler who's going to destroy the world by creating a black hole by the mass <laughs> of his time travels appearing one on top of each other within nanoseconds very soon. And then the universe is destroyed as a uh, cosmic string comes in, which we, which was represented by a bubble machine <laughs> and fog. And then these actors as a Greek chorus came out and delivered a song essentially to the Large Hadron Collider, saying that the Large Hadron Collider was worth all of this struggle. <laughs> but the universe must be destroyed. And then the universe is destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. you know. Lights down. Rock music. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so I, I, I never thought that I would say that anything was crazier than Star Trek Discovery and the Spore Drive and the Mycelial Network, but I think you've just topped it, Josh. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, it's a dream. It's also, you know, not a little, you know, not a little bit influenced by classic TNG episodes like Cause and Effect or various time travel conundrums that we all love so much. So mm -hmm. it definitely is playing to a Star Trek friendly crowd oh, as well. And the people who noticed those things uh, were appreciative.
<laughs> right, right. So turning to Star Trek, I mean, you've been influenced by it because you're a huge fan. Yeah. How did you discover Star Trek and what is your relationship to the show? Well, I've been a lifelong fan. The first episode I think I saw was Mirror Mirror, maybe, or Space Seed at a very young age, at like six years old. And it just something about it just captured my imagination. I can remember going to see Search for Spock in the theaters, where I remember like my dad explaining what happened in the previous movie. And so I can remember a time before Next Generation uh-huh. and that kind of thing, and being a young fan, just reading the comics, the DC comics and stuff, and the, and the cartoon was in heavy rotation on... Uh, uh, Nickelodeon at the time, uh, but yeah, um, just always been a lifelong fan. So it really just imprinted on me. And I think its message of hopefulness and the humanistic uh, scientific pursuit and all those things just really stuck with me over the many years. I became interested in writing through Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, during the Next Generation's heyday, Michael Piller's big thing was discovering new talents. So they accepted scripts from unsolicited people without you know agents and stuff. So I actually wrote some scripts in uh, the TNG, you know, uh, that were completely rejected and terrible, but I learned basically sort of like taught myself like about writing through doing these Star Trek scripts, fan scripts essentially. So uh, That's awesome. So yeah, you actually have experience writing in the Star Trek universe, trying to Thinking interweave, yeah. Yeah, yeah. interweave and, science yeah. into yeah. the Star Trek narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in the midst of what seems to be a golden age of Star Trek, or a golden revival of Star Trek. For sure, second second golden age, for sure. Yeah. This is definitely back like in the 90s where we've got like five different shows in development. Something like that, point. yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's truly amazing, like I, I grew up in the 90s surrounded by all yeah. of this like TNG was just ending then we had the TNG movies yep. Voyager and Deep Space Nine were on so I was constantly surrounded by Star Trek and I'm just so yep. jealous of the kids that are growing up these days you know yeah. Like, yeah yeah and I think there's something real smart about what they're doing or at least going to try to do in terms of getting different audiences have a adult animation show while also developing a kid friendly animation show maybe the Starfleet Academy thing, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that, but Section 31, all these different types of shows, Captain Picard, it's pretty impressive, and it'll attract different kinds of people to different kinds of shows, so I think that's a really smart way to uh, go about it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, but for right now, all we have is Discovery on the air, so I'm hoping that you can help me reflect on what we've seen in Discovery so far. So... As a person who is active in trying to weave fiction and science together into science fiction, how do you think Discovery has done in their storytelling and their use of scientific motifs? I love it. I actually am really into all the mushroom stuff that they're doing. Uh, I uh, actually watched a documentary recently about mushrooms, and it's just fascinating in the way that they are able to take some core ideas of that, knowing that Paul Stamets is a real, is the name of a real scientist. Uh, I think that's fascinating. It was fun in just this week's episode to hear the phrase giga electron volts. I think their technobabble has actually gotten more scientifically accurate, so they're not just saying words at each other. They're building on all the tech that they've that Star Trek established. I mean, but at the end of the day, it's like you always got to remember that, you know, it's 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 an entertainment show, so they're going to take ideas and sort of go run their own directions with them. But yeah, I think it's fascinating, just multiple dimensions and things like that. So, uh, And how would you um, compare and contrast the first season versus the second season of yeah. Discovery so far? Um, it's, it really is a night and day difference, to, so to speak. 
starting with the dark period, all these dark things in season one, and then it's really just revealed the light. I think that uh, finding Pike as the captain was just kind of a stroke of genius that at first, when you hear it as a fan, you're like, I don't know that, do, I, do we really need to go back to characters that we've met before? But I think that was actually really necessary. And the captain figure this season has just been this guiding principle of light. And it's just so nicely contrasted with Lorca, who was so mysterious and dark. Personally, I was in the camp that felt like a little disappointed that Lorca was really the mirror universe Lorca. I thought it would have been really interesting if he was prime worker and those, right. those moral ambiguities were like his thing that was kind of interesting but once they went there it was fun to just see the whole story play out once I gave in to that as that was the story choice I'm not the you know as fans it's like we do feel ownership of Star Trek but you always got to remember that it's like yeah I'm watching somebody else's story so you've got to sort of go along with what they want to say what's, what's their tale here is it the choice I would have made? I'm not sure, but we get what we get in the end of the day. And we just had the episode, um, episode four of the second season, titled An Oval for Sharon. Yeah, which and is a Greek mythology uh, reference, if you know, So, which is just also pretty amazing. It falls into the lore of great titles in Star Trek that reference literature, mythology, or Shakespeare, always the standard. <laughs> I know you were on a podcast, a Star Trek podcast previously. Trek Ranks. Trek Ranks, and you we're, talked about your top five... Top five episode titles. Okay, and what do you remember what they were? Um, For the World is Hollow, and I Have Touched the Sky from TOS. Great, underappreciated episode, and the longest title for a long time, <laughs> only to be unseated by a Discovery episode last season. Um... Who Mourns for Mourn. Okay. Who Mourns for Adonai's, because uh, I love the duel, the, the reference of the previous episode title is great, and those are both just fantastic episodes. Um, the Harry Mud magic to make the sanest man go mad. Yeah. yeah. That was my number one pick. Okay. Um, these wow. are all out of order, so... A Discovery Yeah, number gotta one. have a Discovery one. Yeah, I, that, <laughs> I mean, Discovery, on a side note, Discovery has had just been killing it with the episode titles. Mm -hmm. Every one of them has really been just a very good either line of dialogue that they pulled in the episode or just a, a title that, that means more after you've seen the episode. Like the Vulcan Hello. Yeah. You know, that was released to fans as a, uh, you know, a tease of like, you know, here's a couple episode titles way before mm -hmm. the show. And you're like, what? sounds Star Trek to me or whatever and then once you see the episode and you know what the Vulcan Hello is right. gives it more meaning yeah, yeah. Uh, great <laughs> so Josh does it bother you that the titles of the episodes don't actually appear it does bother me yeah, it that's the one too. thing because it's like A someone has really thought about it and put care into the title and it's the, the one thing that I just really wish they, they did that on every other series so and it really just individualized each episode so and I think often with streaming you just have this blend of episodes that if you don't have the title there, it does, it, it just it's all like, which episode did that happen in? Yeah. And, and so as a writer, what would you say makes a good episode title? Titles are very tough. In fact, going back to the play, it was untitled. He was on play for the longest time, and we didn't have that title until we actually were running through the scene that it appears in as dialogue so it was that root of like that's a category of episode title like appears in dialogue that someone liked and it just sort of stuck or whatever and then um, there's also literary illusion titles the Shakespearean Greek mythology 
I love a title that, that does give the episode more meaning after you've seen the episode and it all ties together. Oh, the final title from the top five was Fear, Treachery, and the Great River from Deep Space Nine, the great episode where Nog is trying to replace, he's given away Cisco's uh, desk, and then he has to beg, borrow, and steal to return it. And that's a great title because every scene in that episode actually refers back to that title in a different way, a different facet. You know, so it's like the Great River isn't just the Ferengi thing, it's also the Odo Wayun storyline. I like titles that, yeah, that, that encompass the whole episode in a poetic way. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so going back to Enobel for Sharon, yeah. tell me about the Greek mythology that plays into this episode and well, how it... Yeah, I'm, less knowledgeable on the details, but I believe that that is the coin that you would give the god in the river sticks when you're like yeah. deceased. But yeah, so that gives meaning to the episode because it's about dying beings. And I just love the way that they were able to blend several different Trek episode types together in ways that uh, were new. The language issues. I don't think I've ever seen a computer virus affecting the ship and the, the universal translator's broken. Yeah, I love that scene. That was, was amazing. amazing. Yeah. That was the first uh, instance of Andorian being spoken on Star Trek after 50-some-odd years. Really? Yeah, I okay. found that out on Twitter just last night, in fact. So, yeah, not only is our alien language spoken there, but, yeah, so many different Earth languages. It just was kind of like, wow, you didn't catch the Cantonese mm-hmm. or the Italian or the German or the... You know. I was watching the episode with a bunch of friends, and I had a, I had a friend from France, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh my god, why are they speaking French? Nice. <laughs> yeah. It was really fun. And the communication. I mean, to realize, like, yes, it's, we're really just about talking. I mean, that was one of those fifth bump moments for me, where I was like, that's so Star Trek, that it's like, the alien's just there to talk. Right. It's not. It's not conflict. And it was a dying alien, yeah. which goes back to the whole, mm-hmm. you know, paying mm-hmm. your your um, your passage to the next, the next life for or sure. whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And then we also yeah. had the story about Saru yeah. dying, or so yeah. he thinks. Yeah, only to be reborn like the Phoenix. That scene. So it's so heartbreaking. I've seen the episode now a couple times because I'm that kind of <laughs> same kind of here like I literally watched it and then just took a break and then watched it again the night that it aired and then again last night to prep for this, yeah. this uh, conversation uh-huh. and then um, but yeah it's just every time you see it it's like the end of E.T. where E.T.'s sick and, and we've, we've invested so much in these characters and they've come so far together from, from being enemies to suddenly best friends and it's just such a beautiful scene you literally are going like don't do it don't do it. like singing that as the audience now what's going to happen I don't know it's going to tie back to that short treks oh for sure episode, yeah you know, which was merely a, a prologue for this storyline absolutely yeah so Saru has now realized that the entire way of life of his species is a myth yeah and that they yeah. have a greater future yeah. waiting for them if they only knew yeah. that all you needed to do was shed your ganglia yeah. and yeah. shed your fear shed your fear and be reborn live live anew yeah I mean I think that's a fascinating storyline there's really is uh, heartfelt I'm, I'm very fascinated to see where that goes what's happening with Tilly <laughs> and May and yeah the yeah. scene where Stamets and uh, Jet Reno, who deserve their own spinoff, uh, <laughs> are tripping. Yeah. Um, great, great. Yeah, let's talk about Stamets and Jet Reno. There's a little bit of tension between them yeah. at first, 
Uh, what did you make of that? I liked it. It sort of became, you know, it's one of those things like thinking about these different scientists who have different approaches. Like, yeah, they would kind of argue each one's better. And yeah, here's one who's, you know, Jet Reno is a little bit more of the traditionist, dilithium and, and antimatter. Stamets is going for new, potentially renewable energies, you know? So they're a great pair. Her, her deadpan humor, I think she's like the bones of Discovery. And it's just, I, I want her to be chief engineer. Yeah. She yeah. just has to be chief engineer soon. <laughs> and uh, we have to see the real engine room, for God's sake. We've right. only seen the lab, you know? Yeah. I think something that maybe people who aren't inside of the scientific community don't realize is how much scientists love to argue with one another. Yes. You know, um, yes, we are all trying to find the truth and, you know, pursuit of this. Yeah. one truth yeah. but we're approaching it from different angles and yeah. people are always questioning yeah. each other and you know making snarky comments at each yeah. other just like Jet Reno and yeah. Paul Stamets were so yeah. yeah I love good puns and to learn that uh, not only do cheeseburgers surviving to the 23rd century but pizzas mushroom pizzas you know mm -hmm. yeah. it's just fun just sniping at each other it just it does it gives a reality and the, the bonds between the cast have been just really increased this, this season. I think they've really come into their own. Totally, yeah. <laughs> That's what I really enjoy is when the, the characters have their own unique relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. Like Each character has a different relationship with each other character. And when you can identify that and really buy into those friendships yeah. or conflicts, yeah. it, be, it makes it for such a compelling piece yeah. of fiction. Yeah, at its best, I think Discovery is like the Deep Space Nine of today. I think it's the spiritual successor of Deep Space Nine because it's asking a lot of those bigger questions in a serious way. Serialized storytelling is sort of a grander look than, say, you know, Voyager or Enterprise or whatever. Not to denigrate those, but it's different different types of storytelling. Oh, totally, yeah. So. yeah. We got a brief glimpse of number one in yeah. this episode. Um, I know there's not much to talk about with yeah. her because she said just a few lines yeah. in the mess hall, but... Yeah. Uh, what did you I think see? She's, she's great. I, um, I'm not ultimately sure where I am in the camp of do, should they reveal her name or not. <laughs> I saw an interesting uh, conversation about this on Twitter. They were uh, discussing how part of the reason she never had a name is that she was simply very frightening to the men around her as both a character and as an idea. And the character had to be basically cut out of Star Trek because it was too hot button to have a, a woman in command. I know in one of the novels they name her, so I feel like right. they'll name that and thus sort of canonize that particular no novel. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I do wonder how they're going to tread this ground, blending the novels with the series, and uh, what they're going to yeah. allow to take from the novels, and what they're going to say, no, yeah. actually, that's not canon. Yeah. Um, especially... I don't know how much you've read. I haven't read the newer novels, but I did read novels back in the day, back right. in the 90s, the Peter Gavin novels, like mm -hmm. Vendetta, and Q Squared, and Q and Law, and uh, a number of different you know novels and stuff. So I, I didn't read them all, but you know I love them. But I always, I'm just one of those fans where it's like, I don't care if it's candid or not. You can, <laughs> I'll enjoy this. If I want to think Federation is part of you know the novel by the Reeve Stevenses from the 90s, if I want to think that's part of the, the canon of Star Trek, it is. It's up to me. Make your own canon. Don't let the studios tell you what, what is or what isn't. And just don't let it prohibit your enjoyment or others' enjoyment of the thing. I think that goes across the board for any franchise or whatever. But I, I think it's fascinating the way that they're incorporating the novels and the comics into yeah. Discovery in particular because of Kristen uh, Byer, who's yes. a novel writer who's become... Right. 
very few novelists have become actual writers on the show. I can think of maybe a handful of examples, but she's done an interesting job of farming out ideas to different groups or whatever. No, I, I completely agree. I love the fact that Kirsten Byer is in the writer's room and is yeah. actually one of the, the top writers, yeah. right, for the show. Yeah. yeah. And um, my main question for the novel verse of Star Trek is that there's been a lot of post-nemesis novels. Yes. And they have been going all the way up to 2387. Right. And they haven't discussed anything now about... now what happens. Yeah. Yeah. What happens because we're having the Picard yeah. series and will they honor what has happened in those novels between think, Nemesis and the no. Picard series? I think in that case it's going to be a potential... Just wipe it just clean. Just wipe it clean. Because in the end of the day part of it is an unfortunate it's part of the production realities and the way that rights work is that they ultimately can't I don't believe that they will use the novels because they don't want to have to pay that particular writer for oh, the thing I never considered that because it has to be paid for every literally in every episode that it appears in so, in fact, another example of this is that Nick Lacarno's character from the fifth season classic TNG episode, The First Duty, could not be reprised as Paris because right. they didn't want to pay the writer of the episode for all those royalties for using their character in a whole series. Yes. So I want to end with just three predictions. <laughs> the first is I want you to take your best guess and what episode we will finally find Spock, what episode we will finally get Dr. Culber back to life, and what Picard is doing when we meet him in the new Picard series. Okay, go Josh. All right. I think we're going to see Spock episode after next. So like episode six, six we'll see him. Because okay. that's sort of midway through the season-ish. Uh, yeah. Um, plus, the scenes that we've seen in the previews uh, have been pretty plot-heavy, it seems. So it seems like he becomes a major focus. That's my prediction. When do we see Dr. Culber? When do we see Dr. Culber? Yeah, I think that's going to be a little later in the season. But I'm holding out. I mean, he's now a regular on the, on the main credits. But we haven't really gotten a word about him. I think he's going to be tied to May. I don't know how. But I think that's a little bit of a longer con for the season. Okay. And a, and a bigger storyline that they haven't even really set up yet, truly. Right. I think Captain Picard is a retired disgruntled archaeologist or archaeology professor. It makes sense to me given the chase. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, and just the numerous times, like he's, he's, an arm, he's always been an armchair archaeologist. I think that he gets kicked out of Starfleet for some nefarious reasons and we meet him as an archaeologist. I would love to see all of those predictions uh, yeah. come true. <laughs> and um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds. It's been yeah. fantastic. I, uh, anytime. It's been uh, just great fun mm -hmm. discussing uh, science and Star Trek in yes. one conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> that concludes episode 61 of Strange New Worlds. I want to thank Josh for joining me on the show because I really enjoyed my conversation with him especially because he is the perspective of somebody who's on both sides of entertainment. He's a fan and a creator. As such, he opened my eyes to completely new things, like reasons for why the post-Nemesis Star Trek novels may not be honored in the Picard series. It's simply a matter of royalties and rights. Because he's a writer, he also has such a deep respect for another writer's story. 
and he's pretty forgiving when Star Trek seemingly stretches scientific ideas too far, because it's all a part of the story that somebody else wanted to tell. But Josh also knows that a piece of fiction is not just about the intention of the writer, but the impact that it has on the audience. And at the end of the day, what really matters is what the audience takes away from it. So he's also a proponent of the fact that each and every one of us gets to build and create and make our own canon. What do you think? Let us know by tweeting at Josh at Madcap of Science and myself at MikeY. That's M I Q U A I. Until next time, keep on enjoying season two of Star Trek Discovery, and I'll see you out there.